0: In Romans chapter 8, verse 31, the Bible says, God is for us. God is for us. Who wouldn't like the sound of that? To make it personal, God is for me. If there's a God and He's all-powerful and all-knowing, all-wise, for Him to be for me, I'm for that. Who wouldn't be for that? God is for us. And then you bring it into the Christian realm, which is in Romans chapter 8, and we hear that God is for us. And we think to ourselves, that's right, that's good, I'm encouraged. And yet, if we're honest, hopefully respectfully honest, we might think, if God is for me, then why don't I have a very good life? If God is for me, why the pain? If God is for me, why the disease? If God is for me, why the conflicts? These are the kinds of questions that, that godly men and women have grappled with. Read through the Psalms. There's this, this struggle and there's this questioning, God, why is this happening? In a sense, it's, God, if you're for me... Why are my circumstances like this? And it doesn't feel like you're for me. If God is for us, why all those things? Well, the short answer, because really that's not primarily in view, primary in view today. The short answer is, He's for us. The bad circumstances we experience and the conflicts we experience are never promised to be removed for Christians until Christ returns. When Christ returns, there will be perfect, the Bible says, equity, perfect justice. There will bring, he will bring restoration. The resurrected one will bring resurrection so there's no more pain. And so, we might not feel like God is for us. And in a sense, we shouldn't feel like God is for us circumstantially until God fulfills His promises in Christ and Christ returns. With that said, this morning what we're going to talk about is what it means for God to be for us. What does it mean? What what exactly does God mean when He tells us in His Word in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, He's for us? What difference does that make in my life? How can that sustain me through the happenstance and circumstance? As a pastor, I want us to look at Romans chapter 8, which is a very pastoral kind of chapter, encouraging people who are in tough circumstances, which is how it's always been since the fall. How does it encourage us to know that God is for us in the here and now, when oftentimes it doesn't look like it and it doesn't feel like it? And so again, if you haven't seen that text, i mentioned it a couple of times. It is in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, where we do have that statement, God is for us. How is he for us? Well, if we get used to the context a little bit, he's for us in his son and his son's work of redemption. If we were to take the time to look at verses 18 to 25, which we won't this morning, we would see he's for us in the redemptive work of his son. That would be awesome to look at. We'll do that another time. If we were to take the time to look at verses 26 and 27, we would see God is for us in the work of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit prays for us, and and He's on our side too. But what we're going to do this morning is look and see how God is for us in His purposes. God is for us in His purposes. If you want to sound uh, more sophisticated and theological, God is for us in His decree, in His purposes, in His plan. God has a plan, and that plan is a personal plan, and that plan is designed to be for us. And if you can remember the plan of God being for you, and I'm saying you because it's going to be real personal, that is what keeps you from having your joy robbed. That's what keeps you on the, on the steady, if you will, through life with its ups and downs. Romans 8 is about the downs. It's about dealing with this issue. How can, how can I have the, the joy of the Lord as my strength? And, and how can I be steady? And how can I be persevering? And how can I have joy? And how can I be encouraged when what I see with my eyes isn't encouraging? Remember the work of Christ. Remember the work of the Spirit. And we're going to focus today on... Remember the decree of God. Remember the personal purposes of God. Or maybe we should say purpose of God. And as a pastor, I want you to do that. I want you to be able to live a more successful Christian life, a more Christ-honoring Christian life by remembering God has a plan, a perfect plan. And we're going to see that we're part of the plan. And that's in verses 28, 29, and 30. Verse 28, we see on plaques, we see it... um, on pictures, not so much 29 and 30, uh, but we probably should see it there. So let's go ahead and read 28, 29, and 30. And we know, so that 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 knowing is to sustain us. We know that for those who love God, all things—in the context, that's even the bad stuff—all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose, according to His decree, according to His plan. And here's what undergirds that. Here are the big, strong legs of the table that hold up verse 28. For those whom He, God, foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. If you noticed, there are five major components to this plan, to this purpose. Christians who've gone before us refer to them as as the links of God's golden, unbreakable chain of redemption. And we're going to look at those, those five links, and we're going to see that they're unbreakable because where there is the first link, there is the last link. No matter what, the chain never breaks. So again, when, when life is broken and everything seems upside down and a mess in your life or in people, other people's lives who are believers, one way to get through it and have a right perspective is knowing that God works it all together for good. And how do we know that? Underlying that foundation, underlying that great strong table is, or are these five links, these five legs, if you will. They're awesome. They're meant to encourage. They're meant to bring comfort. They're meant to, to, to build a persevering kind of spirit. And I hope that happens today even as we study God's Word together. The first link of God's unbreakable chain or His perfect plan, number one, He foreknew. God's foreknowledge is the first link in the chain. We see it in verse 29. Look there with me if you would again. For those whom he foreknew. And if you need to glance ahead, you can see in verse 30 it ends with also glorified. So when God starts, God finishes. Let's talk now and consider what it means for God to foreknow. Please remember, first of all, it's meant to encourage, it's meant to comfort, it's meant to build you up and sustain you through the storm. Please notice it doesn't say what God foreknows. Now, here's a really tough question. I hope you're awake. I hope you had three cups of coffee because it's going to be a toughie. Does God know the future? Yeah, pretty easy question, right? God knows the future. We could look at passages like that. It's, I'm not suggesting God doesn't foreknow circumstance. He doesn't, know for, uh, doesn't foreknow events. He does. But that's not what our passage says. It doesn't say, for what God foreknew. doesn't say that. That's impersonal. Now, God does foreknow the what. He knows the what ahead of time. But that's not what this is teaching. It says, those what? Whom he foreknew. That's pastoral. That's personal. That's meant to warm your aching heart. Those whom he foreknew. He doesn't only know circumstances ahead of time. He knows people ahead of time. Individuals ahead of time. There's something unique. There's something special. And and Christians for a long time have grappled with how do we explain this best? And some Christians have have mistakenly concluded God knows the future. Well, it's good to know that God knows the future. But that's not even close to as good as this passage is. He knows people. What does it mean for him to know people? And if we have a little bit of of biblical understanding floating around in our head, and, and most in this room do, and, and we might even have a little bit of connection to some old English and the way translators have translated older things. And, and like in the King James Bible, and so-and-so knew his wife. And we giggle when we're kids. And then they had a child. There, there, there's, there's intimacy. There, there, there's personal relationship. And so that's why many Christians have easily explained this. What does it, what does it mean for God to foreknow people? And they've said a good synonym, it's, it's for him to forelove people. It's for God to set his love, his affection, his care, his unique care upon people beforehand. And I have no doubt that that's really what he's getting at here. It's not that he foreknew the what, it's that he foreknew the who. It's not that he foresaw, but that he foreknew love, affection. There's another reason why we know that this is what he's getting at. And I'll get to the practical side in a second. But we know that he's not looking ahead at at, at circumstances and seeing that Pat does the right thing, and so I'm going to make sure I have a plan for him. We know if we're reading Romans, that's not what he has in mind. Now, we can make the Bible say a lot of things, but not in context. If we've been reading through Romans and we say, it's not that God said, oh, look, Pat's seeking after me. I'm going to include him in my plan. Let's just go back to Romans chapter 3. We we know that if God were looking ahead, seeing what Pat would do, it's not that, oh, Pat's seeking after me. I'm going to respond to him. Romans chapter 3. Go ahead and look there if you would. Uh, Flick with your finger if you're uh, plugged in or uh, turn with your finger if you're carrying a Bible. Romans chapter 3 verse 11. If God were foreknowing events or circumstances and seeing what we might do, no one understands. No one seeks for God. In fact, he's actually referencing Psalm 14 where it's the looking. God is, God is forelooking, if you will. And when God is forelooking, he sees nobody's seeking. So the very concept we might have in mind, verse 12 says, all have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So when we start putting the pieces together, we we, we come to the conclusion that God is foreknowing. He's foreloving even when we're not lovely. And let me help you connect the dots. Why is that practical? Because when your life is in an upheaval and circumstances are bad and maybe you're not looking so worthy yourself, not looking so spiritually beautiful yourself, Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I know. I mean, all this stuff is going on and that doesn't sustain you through it. It doesn't sustain you to say, well, God saw that I was doing the right thing and so He set His love upon me. Well, now He sees you're not doing the right thing. And now Romans 8 isn't very, very encouraging and Romans 8, 28 doesn't even make a lot of sense. You see, what God does is God loves Sinners. He loves unworthy people. He sets his love on us. And now in the here and now, when maybe I'm not looking so lovely and life is looking anything but lovely, I can remember back to how it all started. God foreloved me even when I wasn't lovely. And surely, therefore, he's not going to stop loving me because now all of a sudden I don't look so lovely. You see? You don't need to go there if you don't want to. I'll reference Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. That really helps us make sense of God's love, His, his foreloving. Even when we were rebels, that's exactly when He chose to forelove us. So again, in the here and now, where maybe you're not looking so lovely, if it's based upon you to begin with, your joy is gone. But if it was based upon Him to begin with, it's sustained joy. God loved you when you were unlovely. Romans chapter 5, while we were yet, what? Sinners Christ died for. It's not initiated by our loyalty. It's not initiated by our goodness or our spiritual beauty. And therefore, it's not maintained by my spiritual beauty. Got to remember that. I remember the first time I saw my wife, Molly, Andrews Hall, University of Nebraska, Lincoln. First time I saw her, I thought she's beautiful first time I saw her, I fell in love with her because she was attractive to me. And the more I got to know her, the more I loved her. So I I fell in love with her right away. Love at first sight. That's not how God foreloved us. I think that's a gift from God. I'm thankful for that. But if we're talking about God looking at us ahead of time, He sees us not lovely. He sees us at our worst. And He chooses to love us, and by the way, make us lovely in His sight because of Christ. Again, friends, let me give you some pastoral encouragement. You're still sinning. (laughs) On your own, you still have spiritual warts and blemishes. <laughs> and so what's really going to get you through and get you through the hard time and sustain you and give you that kind of joy as you go, it's, it's remembering that God causes all things to work together for your good, for those who love Christ, those who have been called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, <sighs> He foreloved us even when we weren't lovely. I can do it another day. You can do it another day. It's based upon His work, not our work. And that carries the day. I hope that encourages you. I hope it helps you. This is how God is for us. He has a plan, and it starts with foreknowing, even before time began. We know it's before time began because of what he comes to next. Number two, the second link in the chain. Irreversible, unbreakable. He predestined. He predestined. Look at verse 29. Again, if you would, for those whom he foreknew, link number one, he also predestined to be conformed, notice he predestines us to something, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That God has this predestining plan that we would be like his son Jesus, who by the way he said he was pleased with, so God has us on a predestined plan so that he could say he's well pleased with us so that Christ Jesus, based upon His work, would be the firstborn, the first resurrected one of many resurrected ones. Firstborn among many brothers. So this is meant to encourage us, you know what? Just as Christ was raised from the dead, when He was raised, He was raised as the first raised among many. When life is trashy, when life is anything but predictable and stable and you don't know up from down. How great is it to know that God is working everything together for good? And how do we know that? Because He's a God who foreloved. Not only did He for love, He also predestined. That is, he had a destination, right? A destination determined ahead of time. And that destination is to make us like Christ, resurrected. Oh, yes. This is glorious. This is awesome. This will carry you when nothing else will carry you. Destination predetermined. And by the way, the destination, if we look at the end of verse 30, is glorification. To see Christ, to be like Christ. We'll talk more about that later. God's plan is a plan of love. It's a plan of predestination. And it's meant to encourage. It's meant to to build you up. It's meant to to provoke you to want to continue to follow Christ. God has a plan of predestination. And it's not in the context of controversy, it's in the context of encouragement. Maybe putting some of the pieces together again, I'll just reference Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons. So it makes sense the way Paul talks there. In love he predestined us, and we had the foreloved or foreknown, and the predestined, they go hand in hand. Isn't it a shame that predestination is so controversial? Isn't it a shame that Christians are afraid to talk about it? Isn't it a shame that sometimes we have all kinds of crazy views in our head about it? Almost to the point where we don't even think it's in the Bible? It's a shame because it robs men and women and boys and girls like you and like me from knowing something of God's purposes. God's personal purposes. Again, those Whom, personal right, he foreknew, he also, and the implied is there, whom he predestined. And we know this doesn't build up arrogance. Oh, look at me, I'm predestined. Anybody who acts that way doesn't understand predestination, right? They haven't read Romans chapter 3. Not to mention Ephesians chapter 2. Not to mention Genesis. (laughs) I mean, you get the idea. It's not because we're worthy, but God does this. There's a destination that is determined. We all understand choosing a destination and typing it into Google Maps and saying this is where we want to go and and we're going to follow the directions. Well, this is like the perfect, never makes any mistakes, regardless of what kind of road construction is going on, Google Maps. It's perfect every time. Destination secured. Secured. And it's meant to encourage you. It's meant to encourage me. If I'm in Christ Jesus by his grace, glorification is absolutely sure. It's awesome. It's awesome. It's a shame it's controversial. I'm willing to engage in the controversy. Not here, not right now. Because Romans 8 is pastoral. I'm willing to engage in the controversy. I will fight for the clarity and the truthfulness of predestination. I hope it's not just a fight. I hope it's because I'm a pastor. And I don't want people like you. Let me be selfish. I don't want people like me to be robbed of that. It's meant for you to be encouraged. And I might not come alongside of you and preach a predestination sermon in your ear when you're suffering. But I'm doing it now. Hoping that you tuck it away in that little mp3 file that you have in the back of your head. When all heaven breaks loose. And you don't know up from down. Know this. That the God that you know and serve and love and who loves you. Has a plan that started from eternity past. And it's a plan that is a predestining plan. And so you rest. You rest. I think it was John Owen... Who talking about this um, and God's sovereignty wisely said when you talk about predestination and God's sovereignty be sure to talk very softly because you're talking about the very heart of God yeah God cares for His own that He's foreloved and nothing will stop them from reaching their destination as sure as God is all powerful Let it encourage you. Let it build you up in the turmoil and the weakness. It's so interesting that the Bible doesn't reserve this this reality for mature Christians. You get it pretty much right away. Remember the people in Rome are, are new believers. And they're learning this stuff. It's not just for the academy. It's also interesting. You read, you know, we tell we tell unbelievers to read the Gospel of John, which I think is a good idea. Sometimes I think maybe since we're um, so Gentile, uh, maybe Mark is better because that's a, a Gospel written to Gentiles. But I'm all for telling unbelievers to read any Gospel account. Don't get me wrong. But the Gospel of John, as one pastor said, is like the most predestinarian book in the whole Bible. But you know what? Jesus didn't hold back from. Speaking about these things. Because again, they're not supposed to be bad things, they're good things. I just want to encourage you one more time with this. Rem- remember the context in which it comes in Romans 8. It's meant to encourage people, it's meant to sustain people, and to build people up amidst suffering. Our world is broken. Your life is broken. Your relationships are broken. Isn't it good to know that there is a destination called glorification and God has predetermined it? It's great. It's how we know Romans 8.28 can be true. Number three, He called. There's the next link in the chain. He, He called. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So the called will be glorified. Um, It it seems now we move into time. Foreknowing before time. Predestining, especially in light of Ephesians 1, before time. God's plan. And then God's plan enters into time and there's calling. God calls us. And then we move on to justification, which happens by faith. That's in time as we know it. And then we move on to glorification. That's time in the future as we know it. But now we're entering into time as we know it. That God calls us. And if God calls us, He's going to glorify us is is the reality, is the idea. That God calls people to salvation. And that's meant to encourage us. Now you should know that sometimes in the Bible... I don't get stuck in the technical details today, but just remember or know, sometimes in the Bible, calling is used in a very general sense. We preach the gospel to everybody. We issue the gospel call. Jesus said, um, many are called, few are chosen. It's used in a general sense. Sometimes the Bible uses calling that way. But other times the Bible, especially the Apostle Paul, doesn't use calling the same way Jesus does. Just like we have words that mean different things in different contexts, right? And what I say in a certain context means one thing. What I say in another context might mean something else. The way the Apostle Paul uses calling is it's for people who are Christians, the called, sometimes he calls them. They're the called of God. Or people who most certainly will become Christians. Like he's saying here, those whom he foreknew, He predestined those He predestined. He called. It's this what theologians call the effective call, the effectual call. When God's Spirit works and calls you to salvation, it's a guarantee you're going to be glorified because that's how the links in the chain work. It's this tractor beam calling, if you will. It's a sure calling. Both are important. Both are true. It's important that we don't confuse the two or we'll confuse our role with God's role. That's happened throughout church history. So what we do is we call everyone to believe. And we do the general call. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. We do the Romans chapter 10 call. We we preach Christ to anyone and everyone. Acts chapter 17. uh, God is calling everyone everywhere to repent. General call. It's our privilege and joy to do that as ambassadors. And then we know full well, if we know our Bibles very well, even just our passage that God, the Spirit, is the one who issues the effective call, the internal Holy Spirit-wrought call, and we know for sure that that one works every time. Because those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. Those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. My general call is not effective every time, right? Right? Right now, I'll say, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Sometimes it's even in a command mode in the Bible, so I'll do that. Believe in Jesus, and you will be saved. Repent of your sins, and you will be saved. And that's true. But I'm not the Holy Spirit, so I can't create that inside of you. I can't issue that effective call but what we're seeing in our passage is not so much the intellectual theological side of things it's in the context of talking to believers and saying to believers those whom he has those whom he has called and if you're a believer by the way that's you he will most certainly absolutely positively irreversibly glorify you so when your life dishes up, yuck for you. Just know, those whom He's foreknown, He's predestined and He's called. And if He's called you, He'll glorify you. We all have a different story as to how this happens. It all happens the same way as far as the Holy Spirit does it, but different circumstances. We hear the gospel. Maybe we hear it many times. But if you're a Christian, you have heard Christ's voice, if you will, to go from John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice, and they listen to me, and they follow me. If you're a Christian, that's happened to you. And you can look at that and say, I've been called of God. I can't explain it. I heard the gospel and my heart changed and my eyes opened and things made sense. I've been called of God. I'm like the people the Apostle Paul calls the called. And the called are the absolutely, absolutely, no matter what, glorified. I'm encouraged. We all have a different way of telling it and a different way of looking at it. But if you're a Christian, you've been called of God effective, effectual Holy Spirit worked inside of you. You know, the person who issued the general call in my life and preached Christ to me, I don't even know if they're a Christian. it's, It's sad and sickening to even think about. I don't even know. And so I could get all crazied out and all freaked out. and Well, then am I really a Christian? And Those whom He has foreknown, He's also predestined. Those He's predestined, He's called. What I do know is, I heard Christ's voice in the gospel and by God's grace, I can't explain it. Only by God's calling could this happen. I responded. And so my security and my assurance and my steadfastness doesn't have to be affected by the junky circumstances that even surround that. The called of God. Again, it's not like, yeah, I'm the called of God. Look at me, I'm awesome. Nobody who really understands this thinks that way. Read Romans 1, 2, 3. Four, five, six, seven, eight. <laughs> you say, Who am I? No idea. But I know I've been called of God. And so, by God's grace, I'm going to persevere through this. I'm going to be sure and steady, even though everything around me is unsteady. Super encouraging to the weary soul. And if your soul isn't weary today, just tuck this stuff away. I alluded to it, but I'll just reference it blatantly. John chapter 10, verse 3. The sheep hear His voice, and He calls them His own sheep by name and leads them out. I like that complimenting our passage because it Emphasizes the personal side of things. Jesus calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. So again, it's not this big, super complicated theological construct. Even though we can look at it from that level. It's personal, just like Romans 8 is personal. Jesus knows his own sheep and he knows his own sheep by name and he leads them out. And so you can make that real personal. If you're a Christian, Jesus knows you personally, cares about you personally, and it's a personal call. And when we put the pieces together, you just have to know that that personal care even reaches back into eternity past. It's all part of this great plan. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and those who've been called according to His purpose. Ah, 828 is awesome. God is awesome. Christ is awesome. His love for you is beyond what you could imagine. Let that minister to your heart and encourage you. Especially when times aren't awesome. Number four, he justified. He justified. Maybe a little bit more familiar um, ground here for some, some of us, but not others. Verse 30 and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. He also justified. want to make sure I get this right in a succinct form. It is to say that in God's court, courtroom scene, though you are actually spiritually guilty of great spiritual crimes, you are given the status of a perfect citizen. It is to say that in God's court, again, though you are actually guilty of spiritual crimes, great spiritual crimes, you are given the status of a perfect citizen. Not just pardoned for your crimes, but counted, considered, reckoned, faithful. Pat Abendroth has committed great sinister crimes against humanity and against his creator God. True or false? It's true. It's absolutely true. You could say amen. I have committed great crimes against humanity, against the state, if you will, and God's state of creation, and against the creator sovereign himself. And I stand before God as judge. And he doesn't just say, I pardon you of all your crimes. He actually treats me, counts me, reckons me, as if I am the perfect model citizen who's always kept all of the laws and done everything right. It's awesome. Justification is this grand reality. And you say, how could that possibly be? That can't be. So many times people have said, even in the name of Christianity, that isn't true. If you tell people that, that they, they we can't control them. If you tell people that, they're not going to do the right things but it most certainly is true and it can be true in Romans chapter 3 in Romans chapter 4 Romans chapter 5 make it clear that it's true because of Him because of Christ He's our substitute the the just the righteous the law keeper the abiding citizen if you will law abiding citizen the just for the unjust it's the great exchange it's, it's awesome so again you're, you're, you're living the the, the the dreg's kind of day today, and things aren 't going well today or tomorrow or whenever, among the, the, the great links that sustain you and encourage you and, and that keep you the one one should be justification. God has declared me righteous, even though i 'm not it 's awesome it 's awesome. I wish more people knew about this. I wish more Christians knew about this. This is why the Apostle Paul will say things like, we don't preach ourselves. We preach Christ. It's about Him. You know, Martin Luther would talk about the accuser, Satan, you know, telling him what a sinner he was. And eventually, by God's grace, Martin Luther figured out that it's a good idea to agree with the devil. At least in some ways. You know, you're right. Christ is my righteousness. That's justification. Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. If Satan goes to Christ right now and says, Who should I name here? Now I'll just name myself. Pat Abendroth, sinning again, thought, word, and deed. Look at him, he's unworthy. Jesus would be lying to say that's a lie but Jesus claims us as his own he is our advocate at the right hand of the father interceding on our behalf he's mine not because of his inherent goodness but because of my perfect work on his behalf see that will sustain you that gets you through that's practical. And again, I, so I'm willing to fight the, the justification battles. The justification is, is only by grace and only through faith, only because of the finished work of Christ. And, and that's necessary and it's always been necessary throughout the history of humanity since the fall. But we have to remember that it's not meant to just be for that. The reason we would want to do battle for those great realities is so that we can even on a practical level say, I can live through suffering and I can live through pain and I can live through a lot of things because I have been declared righteous in the eyes of God. And when other people don't like me, don't think I'm righteous, think I'm bad, want to talk bad about me and say all these things bad about me, you know what? On a certain level I can say, you're right. Romans chapter 4 verse 5 is is one of the greatest texts just in all humanity I'd have to say it says in verse 5 and to the one who does not work but believes or trusts or depends in him that is Christ in our context in this finished work who justifies the ungodly that's us his faith is counted as righteousness see god doesn't god doesn't justify the godly he justifies the ungodly that's a great great thing for you to remember and to know In God's court when he says I declare that you are a model citizen in my court it's not because you are or that you hope to be because you're going to keep failing and so what kind of assurance does that bring? It's to acknowledge that Christ is and he is on your behalf he justifies the ungodly because Christ really is righteous. He really is the model citizen who did all the things right. It's so good. He is so good, That's what I should say. It's all because of Christ. And that's greatly to be comforting for us. Again, I, I'm, I'm a broken record, but remember the context here is comfort, encouragement... And so many times we think, "Well, this is just so academic, and, and this is so lofty, and and, and called." There's two different kinds of calling: effectual in general, and for new, for love. Not what, but whom. It's personal. Got to remember that. Got to remember predestination. When I mention that to my Christian friends in the Bible study that I do at Panera, they all look at me like I'm horrible and mean and angry and prideful. And I mean, that, whoa! I think I just I just need something practical. Just remember that this is in your Bible meant to warm your heart and stabilize you and motivate you in the context of practical. God justifies the ungodly. Oh, and by the way, those whom he justifies, now we're to number five, he also glorifies, icing on the cake. Okay? It's awesome. We can do this one quickly. Number five... God is for us in this way too. He's for us. Look at the end of verse 30. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. That means He, he has us in a perfected state. Fully restored. <laughs> and on other occasions, and I'll do it again, let's, let's carry the effect. He also glorified. I just want to try to capture the the, the finished nature of it. He also glorified. Not He will glorify. Someday I'll be glorified. That's true. You will be glorified. When you see Christ, you'll be made like Him. Like 1 John says, right now you're not glorified. You're still a work in progress. You're still struggling with sin. Your body still aches. You still have conflicts with other non-glorified people. But the reality is, in our context, in Christ, because of Christ, and what He's already done, uh, the Apostle Paul can say of you, uh, You have been glorified, duh. Okay? That's the idea. He's been raised from the dead. Therefore, we know God is for us if we're associated with Him by faith to the point where as He's been raised from the dead already, it's as if you already have been, even though you haven't been. He's been glorified. And so in Christ because it's always and forever and only ever been about his work on our behalf it's just good as done and he can say glorified unbreakable chain i am about so stressed out i can hardly stand it i have so many unfinished projects in my life it's like in one after the other and it's like, Oh yeah i got to renew my passport. Oh yeah the yard is a mess. Oh yeah what about that? We're supposed to build a fence. Oh yeah, we're supposed to cut down all these trees. Oh yeah, I'm supposed to do this, I'm supposed to do that. I'm supposed to plan this. I'm supposed to make this phone call. I'm supposed to make this reservation. I'm supposed to be a better husband. I'm supposed to be a better dad. I have all these books I'm supposed to read, I'm supposed to be getting ready to write a dissertation. I'm supposed to be a better pastor. I'm supposed to return this phone call, I'm supposed to do this email. You know how it goes. All right already. Uh, Why did I even bring that up? I have no idea. I was just venting. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's just the major stress. All these projects. God has no unfinished projects. Never stressed out about it. None. those whom he foreknew dot 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 he glorified I know he has no unfinished projects and I'm sure of it how can I say that because Jesus has already been raised from the dead and Jesus is our representative it's already done hallelujah you know now your life is still going to stink today <laughs> and if it doesn't stink today it's going to stink tomorrow or the next day or the next week or the next year I mean but that's that tension that we live in in Romans chapter 8 I mean theologians have tried to put their finger on this and they've called it they've eventually said you know we have to say something that doesn't totally make sense to us so we'll call it the already not yet you know what it's the best way to go it's already a done deal but it's the not yet done deal because your body still hurts today and you're going to have a conflict and a fight with your wife today or your husband I mean you get the idea But what gets you through, quite frankly, is the theology of it. God has a perfect decree. He has a plan. And it is a sure plan to the point where it's glorified. I've said this on many occasions, but I have to say it again. This is why even Isaiah the prophet said what he said in Isaiah 53 regarding the work of Christ prophetically when he said, By his stripes, by his wounds... You are, what? (laughs) Heal-duh. Isaiah the prophet was not some weirdo meant to be quoted on the Trinity Broadcasting Network or some kind of weird faith healer guy. He was given the same theology that the Apostle Paul would give. Because of the work of Christ, it's already done And when you see Christ, you'll be made like Him and you'll be resurrected to perfection also. But because His work is so sure, it's as if it's already done for you. It's awesome. Now, how is God for us? He's for us like that. If we were then to keep reading, we would say, He's for us, as we've seen all these things, in Christ He's for us. That's a good way to summarize it. And if we were to keep reading in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? What then shall we say to this stinky life of brokenness? Why is it that unbelievers sometimes do better than believers? Why is it that we all suffer? And why why, why isn't mine relieved? If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? How, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand, who indeed is interceding for us. And He just goes on and on, picking up the same themes. But what He's doing is, He's centering all of those themes on Christ. That's why we're so enamored with Christ. We're going to celebrate the supper together, which is designed to cause you and to cause me to remember Christ. And the one who brings all of God's perfect decrees to reality is Christ. So even remember these things as we think about him and as we eat and as we drink. And find yourself sustained through difficulty with me, if you would. Father, thank you so much for your great Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who is the one who calls, who opens our eyes, who allows us to have eyes to see, ears to hear. That you are a God who justifies the ungodly. That you are a God who loves us magnificently beyond what we could even comprehend. What a great and magnificent Savior you are. Encourage us today. Help us to to live well as Christians. To have joy that can only come from the Lord. And as we prepare to eat together now in remembrance of Jesus and drink in remembrance of Jesus, may it be a great and wonderful spiritual taste in our mouths as we consider what He did for us. Through these simple means, may we remember His profound and amazing work. In Jesus' name, amen.